Hi, everyone. I'm Artemis. And I'm Rajni. And we are STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm an entomology technician and the author of Do Jellyfish Like Peanut Butter? Amazing Sea Creature Facts and The Grumpy Pirate. I'm a doctor and the author of the middle grade novels Midsummer's Mayhem, Red, White, and Whole, Much Ado About Baseball, and the picture books Seven Golden Rings, Bracelets for Bina's Brothers, and more. Hi, everyone. Today at STEM Women in Kidlet, we're here talking with Dow Pumiruk. Dow is a pediatrician and the Kidlet author and illustrator of Huxby and other books. Hi, Dow. Hello. Thanks for having me here today. Dow, thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. I'm excited too. So we would love to hear how you got went from medical school and being a pediatrician into illustrating children's books. Good question. A lot of people ask me that, and it's very, uh, very unusual path to take. I started out uh, very artistic in childhood. I loved drawing. I doodled a lot. I made friends because of my artwork, but I never thought of it as a career path. My parents were pretty traditional Asian, stereotypical, and my mom actually worked in nursing, so she really pushed me into becoming a physician. And I thought that sounds like a really solid idea. I love to help people, and I and I love science, so there were a lot of factors that made me say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And then when I got through medical school and training and worked in primary care for a while in private practice, uh, I had, I had kids, I had uh, children. And when we sat on the ground, on the floor and colored together and crafted together and made little puppets and and even the little uh, bunny ears I used to make when I was four years old and put them on little headpans. Mm-hmm. I had so much fun. It was so great. And I knew that I couldn't really just ignore that artistic side of me like I had for over a decade. So then I started exploring again in art and I, I taught myself some basic things like color, pastels and oil paint and colored pencils. And eventually I realized, oh, I still need help. I can't learn this all on my own. And I learned about SCBWI, the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. And I joined them exactly, almost exactly 10 years ago today. And that's where I really learned so much more about writing and illustrating. They were my first official art classes outside of elementary and high school. So that's how I got into it. And I can't turn back now. I'm too (laughs) invested. I love it so much. And how did you decide to write as well? I think it was natural. When I was with my children, the middle child was one year old at the time. She wasn't the middle, she was the baby then. I didn't have my third one yet. But at the time, I wrote a story called Big Sister Teacher because I love seeing the interaction between her and her older sister. And so I had actually written something way back then. And I thought that naturally art was my entry point into the children's Mm -hmm. book creation world. And then after that, I thought, oh, well, I'm gonna try writing. This is pretty cool too. So now I do both. 
Is your process different when you're illustrating your own words versus somebody else's words? Yes, I would say that's not me growling. That's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say that I illustrate other people's stories differently because I have to absorb their words. Like they're not natural to me. So I have to Mm -hmm. read it over and over and over uh, several times. And for most of my projects that I've been working on for other people, there's a lot of research involved that I don't have just naturally in my brain. I'm not that smart. (laughs) And so I spend tons of time researching and it just kind of marinates in my head for a while before I can start sketching and and laying out a dummy. But for my own projects, I feel like they just kind of progress, evolve at the same time, the writing and illustrating. Yeah, I feel like a lot of illustrators say that they're, who are writers and illustrators, um, they say that the story starts with an image or a character that they've drawn and then they're like oh yeah and like and then this is what happens to the characters so it's fascinating to me it's different i guess for authors versus uh, illustrators or author illustrators yeah i so dow i have to ask you a question so i you know all of us here um started off in a different field and then got into kidlit um but how much art training did you have? Because your illustrations are beautiful. I mean, like, they're like fine art level beautiful. And, and I'm just like, wow, because that, you know, that's not like online class, is it? Or, or is this just online class combined with your natural talent? Because it, it kind of blows me away. Oh, well, first of all, thank you so much for those very kind words about my art. I think I have some genetic abilities because I have a cousin who is a much better artist than I ever will be. And she was the first one that uh, showed me uh, that passion for art. And then not that long ago, my father passed away just a few years ago, but before he before he died, we had a chat about what he used to do before he entered the Air Force. So it's a, it's a fun, not a fun story. It's an interesting story. He was very poor growing up because his dad died when he was 17 and there were eight kids in the family. So his mom had to take care of all of them. And before his dad died, his dad was in the Air Force and he said, don't you go in the Air Force. Don't anybody join the Air Force. So my dad went into art school. I didn't even know that. So he was an artist for a year or two, and then his dad died. And what did he do? He signed up for the Air Force. Isn't that interesting? So there's definitely art in my genes. And so, but, but, but really, I really thought that you were born knowing how to draw or not. But over these past 10 to 15 years, when I really worked at my craft, I see there's a lot that you can learn from either online courses or actual art teachers. I think the brunt of my steep slope of learning was when I joined SCBWI and attended my first conferences and heard my first formal illustrators uh, that were teaching. So Will Terry was one of those artists. He's uh, up north in Utah. And Adam Rex came for one of the conferences I went to. They're just great artists and they taught me how to draw. They taught me about contrast and lighting and composition and foreground, midground, background, all these little details that you can't know without learning about it. I mean, you could naturally do it, but there's so many ways to improve your work just by learning about art. So that's how I learned. 
Do you think any of your medical training came in handy too with becoming an artist? Because, you know, you have to visualize a little bit where bodies, like different parts of the body are and stuff like that. Or did you ever have to do like illustrations for like, you know, science class? Like we always had to draw like, you know, what the cancer cells looked like (laughs) under the microscope and stuff. I think it went the other way around. My illustration uh, skills made it easy for me to take notes in class. So I would just draw things out when they'd say, oh, it's on the anterior medial aspect of the tibia. And I could just draw it instead of write that out. (laughs) And uh, it helped me take notes and my notes were colorful. (laughs) Yeah, I think think that's all really helpful when you're doing like, medical school or any sort of science class too. We, I remember in my anatomy class that we did a lot of coloring and like we had a, I had an anatomy coloring book that I used to like study how to do all this. So. I definitely say that a lot of us are visual learners and that's where the art comes in and helps. Did you use the four color pens in medical school? I had a 12 color pen. (laughs) My goodness. Because we had the four color pens that we all called the clicky pens. Oh. And it was like red, blue, blue green, and, and something black, probably, yeah, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and like we would all write, you know, and because, you know, like a lot of times with the lectures, there would be like an outline format, right? And you would make the headings all one color. And then you would hear the entire class go click and like <laughs> change to a different color for the next head. It was. It was so funny, but it was like such, I hadn't thought about that in so long. And my, you know, I'm like a horrible artist. Like I can't draw anything, but like, you know, my sad diagrams in medical school are all in four colors cause the clicky pens were there. And it was good that they were all in a single pen. Cause I really would have lost one of them. I guarantee you that like one of them would have just gone away. And then I would have been, you know, completely just inhibited from taking notes I would have just been like forget it I can't I can't do it now but you had 12 color pen like a single pen with 12 colors a little fatter than comfortable not quite so ergonomic as the four color pen but it was so nice because I had like pink and light blue and dark blue and all the different colors and it again made my notes very colorful but that's so funny that your class had the four like everyone had the four everyone it was like a required thing in medical school I don't (laughs) think it was on the official like welcome to medical school you know thing but somehow we all got the memo that we needed the four color pens I don't know it's so strange I'm pretty sure that like the little bookstore that was like part of the medical school had them like featured it was like here you're gonna need these (laughs) that's so funny now now when people Everybody thought I was weird for using one of those to take notes. Oh. I didn't go to medical school though. So clearly like I was just filtered with all the people who hadn't gone to medical school and <laughs> didn't want to use those clicky pens. So, you know, you were just, yes, you were, you were secretly just hanging out with the medical students in your heart. So this can be on the list of STEM tools. You know, you know how in an illustrator talks, you got, I, I'm always je- jealous of the illustrator talks because everybody's always um, asking like, oh, what brand of pencils do you use? What brand of paper do you use? And then the author talks, nobody ever asks the author is like, oh, what brand of like paper do you use to write on? <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to be giving a workshop on something. And I'm going to, I'm going to push the clicky pen. I hope they still exist. They must still exist, uh, right? No, I have I one. Have yeah. One. Yeah. Oh, they, okay, still, good. they still, Bic makes them, I think. Yes. Okay, good. That's that's going to be my thing. I'm going to I'm going to talk about that because I do think that there's something helpful with uh different visual signals for different things. 
And like, I do that when I'm, um, when I'm brainstorming uh, for novels or whatever, I will go and highlight certain aspects with a certain color or like if I'm brainstorming scenes and I'm trying to fi- figure out which things like make the most, like are most interesting, I'll highlight those. And then I'll like put others in red, like mm. <laughs> <laughs> forget those as boring. So now, yeah, that's, oh, ooh, okay. Now as writers, do you use Scrivener? Because I am just breaking that open and trying to use it for longer form uh, words or manuscripts. Go ahead. I hate this. Scrivener. I don't really? like it. I'm the only author in the world, I think, who hates it. But uh, Reginie likes it. She'll tell I you. Love she'll it. gush about it. I love it. I love it because you can just write scenes. Well, so, okay. So exam- for example, with my novel in verse, I just wrote a bunch of poems, right? And sometimes it was unclear in what order they should be. And so you put them in Scrivener, you can just like literally drag them and not have to like wade through an entire Word document. Um, but The other thing is that sometimes uh, what's really nice is that um, I'm writing dual POV and you can highlight the different POVs in different colors. So it's like very helpful. And then also you can, um, there's like a, um, there's a uh, index card uh, feature where you can just write the summary of whatever happens in that, in that scene or that chapter. And it's, I find it helpful, but I'm also a weirdo because there are times (laughs) when I mean, hey, that goes without saying, you know, I'm a weirdo, but um, it, there are times when I'm like feeling inhibited by Scrivener. Like I go in there and I'm like, mm, like, I'm not feeling, I can't write it. So then I just go to Word and then somehow it's easier to write in Word. And then I take what's in Word and put it in Scrivener. And then when it's time to revise, I take all the stuff in Scrivener. Now Scrivener can compile directly to Word, yeah. but I do not do that because part of my revision process is... Um, cutting and pasting from Scrivener into Word and then I just edit a little bit as I go. Oh, I don't know. For me, I just, so when you're talking about visual cues, I feel like every time I see the words in a different format or a different font or something, and sometimes I, I, I often at one point or another print it out, seeing it on paper is totally different than seeing it on the screen. It like hits different parts of the brain and then you can you know, it's different. It's a different kind of revision process. And I find it useful. All of those things are useful. But yes, I love Scrivener. And nothing is ever lost. You can take a snapshot. If you're one of those scared writers, like I am sometimes, or I'm like, but, but what if I write something and I delete this and it's never as good as that again? What if it never, ever comes back to me again? You can take a snapshot. It's fine. You can just go back to that. That's pretty cool. And it has yeah. that color mm-hmm. element that we're talking about here <laughs> with mm-hmm. the index cards and outlining. Yeah, so I'm learning to use them too. And in uh, what something that you said reminded me of what we do in art as well, uh, tricking your brain to see it a different way. So mm-hmm. I always tell artists who are starting out to flip your image. You have to flip your image because you catch so many asymmetries and wonky points just by seeing it from the other side. And I do this digitally all the time on the computer and Mm -hmm. you can just do it at the window with your paper if you're drawing traditionally. It helps so much to catch mistakes. And the more you do it, the better your brain actually sees the mistakes originally and you don't have to flip it as much anymore. But it's a great way to check your work. Kind of like when you are rearranging your words from Scrivener to Word documents. 
Or when you send an email and it looks different and then you find all the errors mm-hmm. you just sent to your supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> just change the font a million Change times. the format and you'll see it all. <laughs> I, I just blame it on autocorrect. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't make all those mistakes in the email. It was just autocorrected. Obviously not. We're perfect, right? (laughs) (laughs) So has your STEM background snuck into your artwork in other ways, you think? I I mean, I know you illustrated like, um, you illustrated the book about Katherine Johnson. And so that's an obvious STEM one. But do you have other STEM things that crept into Hmm. I think that as an illustrator, the project just comes to me, so I don't get to decide the subject matter. But in my own projects, I am starting to think about what I can do. I have an early project that never sold because it was just a little too, I don't know, anatomically accurate. <laughs> it's called see <laughs> through Blob's First Checkup. And uh-huh. he has some internal organs. And when he eats donuts, they go into his stomach and you can see them. And uh-huh. it was just a little gross, I guess. But I thought That's it was so hilarious. Cute. Thank you. Thank you. Blob was a really happy guy. And I thought it could be a whole series where you could see, oh, look, his Um, he has a fracture of his forearm we just need to fix it but you can see it all you can see pneumonia you can Uh see all of the illnesses in this see-through monster who is just a really kind gentle monster I haven't sold that one yet the market might flip in five years and then (laughs) that will everybody will be looking for like excessively anatomical children's books because you know there's some kid out there who would like go nuts over that so yeah I would have loved that Oh, you could also go really dark and you could have him like eat somebody that you he's not supposed to be eating and they're just like in his stomach like hi oh my goodness that's like that book what's the book where the dog just keeps eating thing bigger and bigger things is it kind of like the old lady who saw the fly well yeah like, but a I, different version of it yeah maybe. i can't think of it either i know what you're talking about but i can't remember it either yeah, that's, that's a good point there. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, that's can... really bad. I went, I went dark there. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. <laughs> you can see the person in there, and then he gets to come out later. You can see that he's just fine in there. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe like the person wants to hide, and he asks see-through blob to eat him. Is it okay? <laughs> People can still see him. I don't know. I don't know. That, I'm that, just... that goes down a weird, like, uh, it can be in the, like, consent section then. <laughs> right. And, well, and, and then there's the whole was... discussion of food, not food. Right? So there yeah, you yeah. Go. Don't eat people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like a, like, yummy, yucky. Um, yes. <laughs> the board book, yummy, yucky. So, so yes, STEM has appeared in some of my work, but nothing published yet. And then I am working on, uh, uh, I guess it might be a graphic novel. I'm not sure yet, but I wanted it to be a grumpy superhero and she's going to go out into the universe or beyond our universe and into other universes. And that's definitely going to have some STEM in it, but it, it'll be fiction. So yeah, for my own projects, a little bit here and there. So what's been your favorite thing in your STEM career so far? In my STEM career? Oh, the kids. I, I just love the kids. It's really hard to decide when you go to medical school and you're done with your four years, you have your degree in hand and you're ready to start residency and you start residency in pediatrics and you pretty much throw away 75% of what you learned because it doesn't apply in peds. I don't have to learn about congestive heart failure or COPD or a bunch of that 
And so that's, that's tricky, but being in pediatrics was the obvious choice for me because kids make me smile. They, they can have, they can be sick, they can be whiny, but they're always cute <laughs> no matter what. And I just <laughs> love seeing them. In fact, I sometimes get distracted by patients. So I have to, you know, get back and be objective and be the doctor instead of the, oh my gosh, look how adorable your baby is. <laughs> so yeah, they, they're just I will, so cute. I will say as an internal medicine doctor who does not treat children, but who has children, like, you know, I, I have my own children. Um, Children are weird. Like that's 75% of stuff that like we learned in medical school. It doesn't apply because children are weird and it's strange manifestations of stuff. Like, so when, um, you know, my daughter, when she was young, like she'd be like, I have a stomach ache and she had to have a fever and I'd take her to the doctor and they would test her for strep. She never had a sore throat and she had strep. And I was like, what kind of alien child? Is this? And they're like, this is very common. It's very common. And I was like, what does that even mean? She would have a stomach ache. She didn't want to eat. And she had a fever and she had strep throat. And I was just like, you know what, people, this is too confusing. So this is very true. And this is what I need to teach our medical students about is in my role as an adjunct faculty at the medical school I teach at, how to tell them the differences between pediatrics and adult medicine. And that's exactly one of them. The child who doesn't want to eat, doesn't have an appetite, actually has a pharyngitis or a sore throat that makes it hard to swallow. So there you go. Yeah. Very, very strange. When I had, um, my, when I had my first daughter, I needed to find a new um, doctor for my uh, primary care physician for myself. And I ended up going to a family practice, getting a family practice doctor. Um, my, my daughter goes to a pediatrician and doesn't, but I wanted to go to a family uh, because I was like, I'm going to catch all these weird childhood things that are going around. And I want the like doctor in town who like knows what those are. And is going to assume that that's what I have. And, you know, it, I, I didn't catch any of those totally weird ones, but like, you know, I got a stomach bug and they were like, oh yeah, we've been seeing that in all our children's patients. So that's probably what's going around. Or, but you know, I had a friend who got hand, foot, mouth disease. Like grownups don't usually get that. And like, I'm sure if they'd gone to like some doctors, maybe that wouldn't have been their first thing on their mind versus like somebody who'd been seeing a lot of kids would have been like, oh, I think that's maybe what you have because clearly your child just had this and it makes sense, but Pretty cool. I've never heard of a choice of family practice physician versus internal medicine doc based on the fact that you have children who are exposures and risk factors for you. Well, I figure that's where I'm getting all of my illnesses from, right? So yeah, there's cesspools of infection. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But kids are strange, but they're hilarious. (laughs) They are, they're adorable and wonderful, but like, they're very strange. I was just like, wow. Yeah. One of my funny stories is a little three-year-old girl. I said, okay, I'd like to explain what I'm doing in a age appropriate way. And I'll listen to your heart. And I'm like, okay, I'm listening to your heart. And then I went to the back to listen to her lungs, but I didn't tell her. And she says, my heart is not back there. (laughs) They're just (laughs) a Oh, okay. I've got a great story too. I got a great story. So I was, I was a medical student and I was in the pediatric ER and, um, uh, father comes in with his toddler daughter and he's pointing at her nose. He didn't speak English very well, but he's pointing at her nose and he said, she smells bad. And I was like, oh, she's like having trouble smelling. And he's like, no, she smells bad. She had stuck like a, 
earplug or something <laughs> up her nose. Yes. And yes. it did smell bad. <laughs> and I was like, body. yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just like, what? I mean, it was, that was gross. That probably put me off pediatrics at that point. I was like, oh no, (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) That's another lecture I give to the students that it includes the discussion of foreign bodies. Wherever there are orifices, children will find things to put in them. (laughs) And they do start to reek after a few months because they've been there. And people might misdiagnose and say, oh, it's just a cold. Oh, you have whatever, sinusitis. And then you realize, oh, that nasal discharge was only from one nostril. And it's been there and not getting better. And yeah, it's probably one of the worst smells ever. I agree, Rajini. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Adventures in pediatrics. There was an episode of House where a kid had shoved something up his nose, but they, he like kept um, sticking like um, fire engines and police cars and like an ambulance up his nose. And the, and House, of course, was like, actually, he was very smart because he was sending all of them in to go rescue the soldier who was shoved even farther up his nose. <laughs> and like they hadn't seen it because there were like other things in his nose. Anyway, I'm sure people can Google that and, or on YouTube and find that episode somewhere, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm, I'm sure it must drive you doctors nuts to have all these TV shows that like, or like house probably drove all of you crazy because after watching that show, I was like, Oh, my left toe hurts. It must be connected to my like sinus <laughs> infection. Like, you know, so I was not able to watch any medical shows after like, once I got to third year of medical school, that was it. I was like, I can't watch medical shows because I'm just yelling at the TV the whole time. I'm like, ah, 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 that's not right. So, so I stopped. We watched ER as medical students up until third year. Yeah. Then it was over. Cause I was just like, that's, that's really fake. And I know, and my poor, you know, husband was just like, it's a TV show. And I'm like, I know, but ah, you know, people are going to think that's the truth. It's so anyway. <laughs> no, I've stopped. My my daughter was a huge fan of Grey's, Anat- Grey's Anatomy, and I just I couldn't couldn't do it. I couldn't either. I couldn't either. <laughs> I'm sure. I think that lawyers feel the same way. I think that they're just like, stop making it look like this is what practicing law is like. Probably true. Yeah, I mean, I there's think, just I, there's not enough TV shows about entomologists. You're an entomologist. So I don't have, I don't have enough to like watch about this to get mad about it. So I get to just watch all these doctor, they're bad doctor shows instead. So (laughs) I think we need an entomology TV show. I really do. They're going to know because they'll mess it up. I'm sure. (laughs) Right. Maybe you need to write the screenplay. There Mm -hmm. you go. No, I'll see. (laughs) Like all you the illustrations yeah. in children's books with six-legged spiders that drive me insane. So, <laughs> you know. Does that really happen? Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, oh, I mean, honestly, honestly, this is ridiculous. And I know they're cartoons, but even the cartoon spiders that only have, like, a circle with, like, legs coming out of Why? it, that makes me a little bit, like, annoyed. Even though that's the style of the art, but it annoys me because spiders have two body parts. They don't just have, like, a circle with, like, legs coming out of it. People are driving And even if they me. did, the legs don't come out of that part of their body. So <laughs> maybe they're drawing daddy long legs, which I, I understand are not spiders. You're listening to STEM Women in Kidlet with Artemis Rarig and Rajani LaRocca. 
We're here today talking with children's book author and illustrator and pediatrician, Dao Pumiruk. But now you know, if you ever draw spiders, okay. <laughs> look, at, look up the body parts because you know I will be scrutinizing <laughs> it later. Okay, okay. I'll make okay, sure. So I- I have a comment and a question for you. So first of all, my comment is your myelin picture book that you illustrated is so spectacular. I don't like I I was not I don't know what I was expecting when I first opened it, but um the way that you drew her expressions and then also the beautiful architecture and that pic that illustration of her touching the monument and the reflection Oh, that like, it actually made me tear up. I was like, I don't know why I'm crying, but I'm here I am. I'm crying because of this illustration. It was so beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about um, doing that work? And then I have a question for you. Another question for you. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Those are really nice words. And it makes me very happy when people can connect with my art like that. And Maya Lin was my first book, um, traditionally published book. And I had, had more time than the other books so far <laughs> to put it together. So I, and I probably needed it because it was my first one. So I spent a lot of time researching her project. The funny story I should say is that when I first got the manuscript, I'm like, she went to Yale, she's Asian, she's really smart. And I thought this kind of stereotypical. I don't know if this is, this is good. And then I saw, oh, she's real. <laughs> she's an actual person. I didn't know who she was. <laughs> I know I shouldn't even admit this. And in she was so, but she was so young she when she did so all these young. things. She is amazing. And the artwork that she did, that inspired me to make the book as beautiful as possible. It needed to be aesthetically great because it needed to respect her uh, respect and reflect her style so yeah it took a good lot of work to to make that one but I'm glad you like how it came out and the wall beautiful oh that's it's just it's just such a meaningful project and her work is so meaningful in so many ways well I mean but I really do think that it came through so beautifully in the art It, it really was stunning so congratulations. Thank you for putting that book into the world. We, we loved it because my daughter was really into architect, into building houses and stuff like that. And so we got it because I was about an architect. But I loved putting in some abstract elements like that, building your own cities with uh, recycled materials. And that one scene of her when she's a little girl and she made her own cities. And I put the artwork all the way around the frame, upside down, toilet paper tubes, tissue boxes, whatever I could find or think of to put in there. And that was that was really fun to kind of just go untraditionally with it. With yeah. Abstract part. That's great. And then my question to you is, I believe you have a book coming out soon, right? I have a couple. <clears throat> I just uh, released equal an equal shot yesterday, and that one I'm so excited about. I'm I'm on a high still because it came out yesterday. I don't have my box of author copies yet, so I'm still waiting. I can't wait to unbox. But that one's about the law of Title IX, and I'm just floored by the way Helene wrote this story. That's really deceptively simple, 
the text itself is probably 150 words and then there's a bunch of back matter, but it's so powerful and rousing. It just makes me want to shout out from the rooftops. Hey, we got to keep fighting for equal rights because people are not paying attention to Title IX. And there are a lot of infractions still in this day and age when this law has been around almost mm-hmm. 50 years. So, and the, the hard part about drawing this story was that we didn't, I mean, it was about a law. I'm like, what do I draw? <laughs> what pictures? It wasn't natural. Here's the childhood uh, person. And then I, I draw her as she gets older. It was the law. So you'll have to look at that book to see to see how I made it work. And it, and it was just fun. It was just a fun project. And it's with Elaine Becker who uh, wrote Counting on Catherine. So it's a whole mm-hmm. same team. A little bit more abstract perhaps then though. Yes, yes. Was it, um, is it harder for you to draw books like that that are a little bit more abstract or is it hard for you to draw the one like the Maya Lin book which is based on like an, almost an artist themselves? Is it hard to, is it intimidating to draw about somebody who did visual creations? I think that if it's nonfiction and I have to make my work look like the real person, that part is harder actually, because I can't mess up even her nose or her ear or her, where her eyes look are. And they just have to look like the actual person that was alive or is still alive. And that makes it an extra layer of challenging. So Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely harder. Do you draw from models for your other work, for your fictional work too? For my fictional work, I usually make up the characters. Although for One Girl by Andrea Beatty that came out in November, I flipped through images of children from all over the world. And I tried to pick someone who would represent the most different diverse backgrounds. Like, could she be Hispanic? Could she be Asian? Could she be even from South Asia? And we... Mm -hmm. I put her together based on a bunch of different people that I saw. So she's kind of supposed to represent any girl. So, and I think that's easier for me because she just has to look like herself Mm -hmm. throughout, but it doesn't have to look like someone specific. Yeah. So interesting. Thank Mm. you. And then some of your other stuff, do you tend to draw from, do you have, do you tend to go out and like find pictures of things or do you just make them up in your head, like for your settings or like if you have a chair in one of your pictures, do those tend to be a real chair or is it just like a conglomerate chair that you created in your head? I think it depends on the project. For example, I have illustrated Hello Tree with Anna Crespo, who lives here in Colorado with me. And the forest scene, actually it's part fiction, part nonfiction. So I did have to look at the black forest in Colorado Springs that her mm-hmm. that inspired her project. And I had to draw those kinds of ponderosa pine trees as opposed to blue spruce or other pine trees. So there's still a lot of research even when it's fiction. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, I do look at images before drawing. Uh, unless it's something basic, like you mentioned a chair, I probably would just draw a chair because <laughs> I'm pretty familiar with what mm-hmm. those look like. <laughs> you have to have a seat in the back and legs, but I, there are so many things that you don't really look at in order to draw them until you really sit down and do that. And you and, and what I'd like to do first though, is check my memory and draw it from my own mind. And then I go back and see, oh, wait, I totally got that part wrong and it revise after I see the real images. Interesting. Do you do all your work digitally or do you do um, paper? I do a little bit of both. And maybe one day when I'm not so 
I don't know, I say yes to every project, almost every project that comes my way. And time is a big constraint. So digital art is a lot faster, but eventually maybe one day I'll try my hand at a completely traditionally illustrated project. Uh, but I like the combination of doing both. So generally what I'll do is start digitally and lay out the characters and the setting, all the scene all on, the computer first because I can move things around so easily and I don't waste paper and I don't have to erase and redraw things. I just move them and that makes it so convenient. Then I print that out in a, on a bigger paper and very faintly and then I can draw everything by hand on that outline, I guess. And then I put it back in the computer and it goes back and forth a few times sometimes. So it's a total hybrid of both, but it, I would have to say majority of it's computer. That's really neat. That's kind of like a uh, scrivener to word to paper to, right? <laughs> right? It's the same I, thing, right? I think we think alike. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so now you can also say that all these, all of you um, children's book illustrators who are working with computers are really doing STEM work too, because you're working with technology so much. Absolutely. To do this. <laughs> so, uh, STEM classes are useful for kids, even if they want to grow up to be, to draw now. True. This is very true. Everything's computer-based these days. And even if you work traditionally, you still have to get the art to the publisher. And most of us don't send it. Most of us will do touch-ups and revisions digitally anyway, and then submit them that way. So it's good to know how, even if it's just sending a dummy and you're going to later send actual hard copies of your art, but just to be able to interact with publishers, you need to know some basic level of computer skills. Interesting. I am so terrified at the idea of sending original art anywhere. I know. I'm I like, know. Oh, what if it gets lost? What if it gets damaged? It's like so terrifying to think about. And that's what everybody used to do. They used to do that with manuscripts too, right? This is like the only copy yeah. of my novel I'm just going to hear. That's like, amazing, what? right? Yeah. yeah, we live in a different time now. And we have copies That's... of things. <laughs> and you wouldn't goodness. have been able to like save the stuff you deleted as easily either because you would have whited it out. You would need to like peel off the white out or something. Exactly. Right. I, I'm pretty glad we live in the modern age. <laughs> Me too, because I would have like an entire stack of pages that I hated, but then I was scared to tr throw them away. Right, right. Yeah. And that's who would, that's what they would find <laughs> after I'd passed away. They'd be like, her writing was awful. <laughs> so Dow, do you have a STEM book recommendation for our listeners? I have several, actually. I had to stop and think, but wow, there's so many. And I'm going to uh, use examples from the authors that I've worked with as shout outs to them, because I think they're all so amazing that I got to work with them. Andrea Beatty has all of her questionnaires series. So that's Ada Twist, scientist and Iggy Peck architect and so on. There's so many great titles there for the younger set. And actually she has middle grade books as well. So those are a great introduction to STEM topics. And then some of my other authors that I've worked with, uh, Ella Schwartz, I have a book out with her probably in 2023 called uh, the book that she's already written is called Can You Crack the Code? A Fascinating History of Ciphers and Cryptography. That one sounds really good, right? I haven't read that one yet. <clears throat> and Susan Wood, Susan Hood, I'm sorry, the 
author, uh, co-author of Titan and the Wild Boars based on the cave rescue story of the Thai soccer team way back then. She wrote uh, Last Straw and that's a new one. I feel like it just came out and it's about recycling and things like that. So definitely a timely book. And then, and then Helene Becker, <clears throat> she has Hubots and Zubots. And those are animals, I'm sorry, robots that they built based on animals uh, is the Zubots. And then some human-like robots are Hubots. So those are pretty cool. <laughs> and lastly, Emma Nother, the most important mathematician you've never heard of, is another book by Helene Becker. So all of the authors I work with, Oh, can I add one more? Anna Crespo that wrote Hello Tree with me. She has Leah and Luis, who has more? And it's a math book. So those are those are really great titles. I mean, there's so many out there. It's hard to narrow it down. So that's why I went with my authors. Very wise. <laughs> great. Thank you. <laughs> and these are great books. I think so. I definitely think so. Yay. Dow, thank you so much for uh, visiting us with us today. We had so much fun talking to you and um, learning about how weird kids are, but also <laughs> how you <laughs> how you um, got into creating for children. So thank you. I love your work and I can't wait to see the next books. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a fun time too, getting to know both of you. Thank you so much for coming, Dow. To find out more about Dow and her books and artwork, you can visit her website at artbydow.blogspot.com. You can find a link to that in the podcast notes or on our Facebook page, STEM Women in Kidlet. And now it's time for STEM book recommendations. My STEM book recommendation is a Songbird Dreams of Singing, Poems About Sleeping Animals, written by Kate Hosford and illustrated by Jennifer M. Potter. This book has beautiful lyrical poems about animals sleeping, all accompanied by facts about these animals' circadian rhythms and sleep behaviors. My STEM book recommendation is Honeybee by Candace Fleming, illustrated by Eric Roman. This incredible book with just fascinating illustrations follows the life cycle of a honeybee. Thank you for listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, the podcast about women with degrees or jobs in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, who also happen to write children's books. Happy reading!